Hello there, and welcome to the Palmal Doughboys podcast, a World War I history podcast keeping alive the memory of what is often called the Forgotten War. Coming to you from Sergeant Alvin C. York State Historic Park in Palmal, Tennessee, on the banks of the Wolf River. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Ranger Brady. Alvin Cullum York, The Myth, The Man, and The Legacy. Written by Dr. Michael E. Birdwell. The image of Sergeant Alvin Cullum York etched into the collective consciousness of most people is not that of the famed Tennessee hero at all. Rather, it is Gary Cooper's portrayal of York in the Academy Award-winning Warner Brothers film Sergeant York, gobbling like a turkey, licking the sights of his American infield rifle, expertly popping off actors pretending to be Germans. The Hollywood movie debuted in 1941 on the eve of America's entry into the Second World War and issued a clarion call for intervention against Nazi aggression. Using dramatic license and considerable revisionism, Gary Cooper's depiction of Sergeant York spoke to a nation not yet convinced that America's involvement in the current European war was necessary. Deftly weaving concepts of individual liberty, romantic love, religious piety, and flag-waving patriotism, Sergeant York melded Gary Cooper and Alvin C. York into an enduring, conflated, one-dimensional image of a reluctant but zealous Christian soldier. For most people, Cooper and York remained inseparable, and the real Alvin York remains largely unknown. Sergeant York and his accomplishments on and off the battlefield need to be separated from the mythology and examined on their own merits. Even though York devoted himself to public education after the First World War, and with significant exception of World War II, remained a pacifist most of his life, those facts are largely unknown. Journalists, historians, and people in general continue to define York by what he did in the Argonne Forest on October 8th in 1918. And what he did that fateful day has been repeated, enlarged upon, exaggerated, and misrepresented. The warrior image continues to be the prevailing portrait of York in American history and popular culture. References to York have appeared in everything from literature and movies to comic strips and board games and more. Since the advent of cable television, with such networks as the History Channel and Turner Classic Movies, York's mythic image should remain in the nation's memory for years to come. Nonetheless, the question remains... Why does York's image endure when other heroes fade? Perhaps the only way to fully understand the York phenomenon is to examine his background and the impact that World War I had on his native region. When the United States declared war on April 6, 1917, it had little intermediate impact on the citizens of Pall Mall, Tennessee. The Wolf River Valley was an isolated, rugged, self-sufficient region virtually cut off from the world. No macadamized roads existed in the region before 1927. Steamboats could not navigate the Wolf River, and no railway lines penetrated the valley connecting it to the outside world. Lack of modern transportation in the valley's remoteness hampered industrialization. Most people living there subsisted through agriculture and hunting wild game. Most were direct descendants of the valley's original settlers, all of whom were English, Scotch-Irish, and German descent. Records show that residents took as few as one trip a year to Jamestown, 13 miles south, to pay taxes, register deeds, conduct business transactions, or participate in elections. The Civil War, which had temporarily opened the region to outsiders, created lasting ill will and general distrust of outsiders. For a person from Pall Mall to go off and fight in a war in France was virtually incomprehensible. Life in the valley was primitive by the standards of the day. Thirteen people shared cramped space in the two-room dog-trot log cabin where York grew up, the third of William and Mary York's eleven children. 
York's family and his neighbors added to their subsistence through blacksmithing, cooperative carpentry, and the production of moonshine whiskey. Folks in the Wolf River Valley felt little kinship to people within Fentress County, much less the rest of America. Coupled with the poverty, isolation, and suspicion lay an almost superstitious interpretation of Christianity based on the infallibility of the scriptures and a literal interpretation of the Bible. York's formal education, which he called a third-grade education, consisted of only nine months spread over three years in a subscription school after the crops had been laid by. When York received his draft notice on June 5, 1917, he was 29 years old and had never been more than 50 miles from home. Yet the very primitive nature of York's pre-war life experience appealed to the romantic people in 1919 and now. The circumstances surrounding York's registration for conscientious objector status remain complicated and add to the allure of his story. During the late 1930s, York denied that he had ever tried to be a conscientious objector, claiming that his pastor, Roger Pyle, had intervened without his permission. A host of events led to York writing on his draft card, Don't Want to Fight. Shortly after York's two oldest brothers, Joe and Henry, left home to start their own families, his father died from a wound inflicted by a mule in 1911. Alvin York, who was already earning a reputation as a hellion, was then expected to help raise his seven siblings, provide for his family, and fend for his mother. The pressures proved too much for the 24-year-old, who found binge drinking and carousing more to his tastes. He and his cronies terrorized the neighborhood, drinking, fighting, shooting, and causing general mischief. After much prodding from his mother, though, it caused him to reevaluate his life, and on January 1, 1915, he attended a revival conducted by H.H. H. Russell of Circleville, Ohio. Russell represented the Church of Christ in Christian Union, referred to locally as the 3CU. A deeply fundamentalist sect formed in the aftermath of the Civil War, it eschewed violence, promoted temperance, and espoused a simple but rigorous Christian faith. Though his family were members of the Methodist Church, Alvin York found the solace he needed in the bosom of the 3CU. Immersing himself in the life of the tiny congregation, York, who had a melodious tenor voice, became the song leader and an elder. He quit binge drinking and landed a job working on a road crew near Jamestown. He renounced violence and his raucous past, and the church provided guidance and discipline. Meanwhile, many in the valley remained suspicious of his newfound faith, including his future father-in-law, Francis Asbury Williams. When York received his draft notice, he found himself in a quandary, Though his brawling days were behind him and his new, respectable life lay before him, he saw few options to consider. When his paperwork was received by the War Office requesting conscientious objector status, it was denied because the 3CU only existed in three states and was not deemed a legitimate denomination. York had little recourse but to report for duty at Camp Gordon, Georgia. He was assigned to Company G of the 328th Infantry of the 82nd Division. Alvin C. York found life in the Army relatively easily when compared to his quasi-frontier upbringing. In letters home, he apologized to his mother that he was gaining weight. For the first time in his life, Alvin York knew that he could eat three meals a day and not have to go to bed hungry at night. He bragged that his Army uniform accounted for the best clothing he had ever had, and he slept in his own cot, which he did not have to share with anyone else. Just as the 3CU gave York the emotional healing he needed, the Army provided discipline, direction, and respect for authority. Listen for our future episode detailing October 8th in 1918 and what Alvin did on that day that set him apart and earned him the Medal of Honor. For now, we'll skip ahead and pick up shortly after. 
The deeds of G Company would have passed silently into obscurity had not Saturday Evening Post reporter George Petullo learned about the story and pursued it to write an article. It was Petullo who singled York out of the eight men involved and fashioned him into a hero, setting the York myth into motion. For Petullo, York's story sounded like something straight out of classical mythology. York symbolized a peculiar American hero whose roots were firmly planted in the 19th century, in stark contrast to the industrial killing that typified the First World War. Like his fellow countrymen who were historically leery of a standing army, York preferred not to fight. However, when his country needed him, he went to war with little complaint. He represented a nostalgia for the frontier for Americans who no longer had one, and the contrast between an idyllic mountain life and sharp contrast with the bustling noise, filth, and harried pace of urban life. Literally born in a log cabin in the wilds of Tennessee, in a valley whose first white explorer was Daniel Boone in 1769, and adhering to a rigid Protestant faith, York represented the American ideal of self-sufficiency. The other seven survivors from G Company, by contrast, all hailed from northeastern urban industrial centers, New York City, Philadelphia, New Haven, etc. Many were first-generation immigrants from eastern and central Europe. Religiously, the seven survivors were Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Jewish in an era when America was experiencing its first Red Scare and was suspicious of anything foreign. York represented to a world disillusioned by the rapacious efficiency of modern and total warfare a simpler, more innocent time. He reminded Americans of Natty Bumpo, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, Abraham Lincoln, and even Dwight L. Moody, archetypal American heroes who sprang from humble origins to greatness without desire for personal aggrandizement. York's seeming innocence appealed to Americans uncertain about the destruction unleashed on the world. He embodied the values of their 19th century heroes, or so they thought and continued to believe. York's real importance rested in symbolism, love of country, self-sacrifice, humility, faith, and military prowess. Further, the ways in which he had been lionized exhibit contradictions inherent in the United States then and now. Americans espouse a love of peace while clinging to their weapons, claim to be Christians while indulging in racism and hate, and avow their love of nature while eagerly pursuing the hazardous fruits of each new technology. York represented something else. Fentress County had sided with the North in the Civil War, and while it played no important role in the war's outcome, its citizens suffered. Camp McGinnis, the Confederate garrison at Mall, harassed pro-Union sympathizers in the Kentucky-Tennessee border area. Bushwhackers, led by Confederate guerrilla Champ Ferguson and his federal counterpart, Tinker Dave Beatty, ripped the county apart using the war to settle personal scores. It is significant that York, a Southerner, was singled out as the United States' most popular hero of the First World War. There were other contenders for the title, though. General John J. Blackjack Pershing favored regular Army Sergeant Samuel Woodfill of Ohio. For many people, in the South especially, York symbolized healing. The wounds of the Civil War were fading into memory, and the South had, at long last, rejoined the Union. While George Petullo introduced the American public and made them aware of the awkward red-headed mountaineer from Tennessee, who seemingly did the impossible single-handedly, the public soon demanded more of him. Joseph Cummings Chase painted York's portrait and interviewed him for his book, Soldiers All, Portraits and Sketches of the Men of the AEF, which located York among other well-known heroes of the war. Though York wanted initially to simply return to Tennessee and marry his beloved Gracie Williams, he became the toast of New York. 
The Tennessee Society of New York rented him rooms at the Waldorf Astoria, accommodations beyond anything he had ever imagined or experienced. York watched Broadway shows, visited Wall Street, participated in a ticker tape parade, and was taken aback in his first real rush of fame. Throngs of people longed to see him and have their pictures made with him, something that continued the remainder of his life. Initially, York attempted to avoid the limelight and return to the life he had known before the war. He said that he did not want to profit from his fame as a warrior, nor did he want to exploit his family's name. That proved impossible. For one thing, the good old life in the Wolf River Valley was decidedly harder than life in the army or as a celebrity. Prevailed upon by his friends, neighbors, and total strangers, York embarked upon a campaign to use his fame to improve his homeland. For the rest of his life, York was a booster for Fentress County, the Cumberland Plateau, and the state of Tennessee. As a result, he was never far from the glare of the media. In 1920, York embarked on his first speaking tour, traveling the southeast in an attempt to raise money for a school on the Cumberland Plateau. Arthur Bushing, a New Yorker who had married a local Fentress County woman, accompanied York, acting as his speechwriter and secretary. Though it would take nearly a decade to make that dream a reality, York regarded the creation of York Institute to be his greatest achievement. His image routinely appeared in newspapers, magazines, and on posters across the country, urging people to support his mission to provide an affordable education to the mountain children of Tennessee. While his cause was embraced by professional educators, progressive reformers, and politicians throughout the country, the people in Fentress County fought him every step of the way. As his mission bogged down due to inter-scene fighting, York was caricatured in political cartoons commenting on the struggle. During a speech he delivered at Carnegie Hall, York told the audience, For years I have been planning and fighting to build this school, and it has been a terrible fight, much more terrible than the one I fought in the war, and I couldn't use the old rifle or Colt automatic this time. Even though York struggled to provide an education for Tennesseans grabbed headlines, the situation failed to concern many people beyond the volunteer state. They wanted to hear exciting stories about his exploits on the battlefield as he braved the elements and used his prowess to kill Germans. Speeches about education and poverty bored his audience. Advertisements for York's speaking engagements continued to depict him as a warrior. Versions of his war story appeared in Ripley's Believe It or Not, Literary Digest, Liberty, and in magazines geared toward children. It also became a staple in religious literature, and York was compared to Gideon, David, Daniel, among other biblical heroes. York's wartime exploits inspired novelists and poets of various stripes. Characters based upon York appeared in two novels written by Kentuckian Robert Penn Warren, At Heaven's Gate, and The Cave. York received hundreds of verses inspired by his heroics, few of them of literary merit. Many poems were printed, and a number of songs including The Ballad of Sergeant York, written by Reba Bacon of Cookville, and set to music by Tom Kirk, were actually recorded. By the late 1930s, York was returning to obscurity. Due to a number of political, financial, and physical setbacks, York was less in demand as a speaker or a celebrity. Though he continued to make public appearances through his agent, Betty Smythe, of Famous Speakers Agency in New York, Alvin York's fame was in eclipse. He lost control of York Institute, but worked out a deal in which the state of Tennessee took direct control of the school rather than the Fentress County. He had tried a number of things to keep his enemies at bay, among them, mortgaging his home to his enemies in order to pay teachers' salaries. Loss of the school hit him hard, and York retreated from the limelight. The Great Depression and growing disillusionment with World War I offered fewer opportunities for public speaking. His growing family demanded more time at home. 
and York settled into the role of farmer, philanthropist. York's fortunes changed in 1940 when he finally relented to Jesse Lasky to make a movie about him. Initially intended to be a film about York's attempts to bring education to Tennessee's Upper Cumberland, the focus of The Amazing Story of Sergeant York changed as the situation in Europe worsened. Producer Jesse Lasky and Harry Warner, president of Warner Brothers, convinced York that Axis aggression threatened the U.S. With his full cooperation, the plot of the movie changed from a plea for better education to an overt call for intervention in World War II. York the pacifist turned warrior who advocated preparedness, endorsed the peacetime draft, and became a spokesman for the Fight for Freedom Committee, an organization created to counter isolationist rhetoric of the American First Committee and its chief spokesman, Charles Lindbergh. When the film made its way into limited release in the summer of 1941, it was embroiled in a whirlwind of controversy. Accused of warmongering propaganda, York defended the movie and his own interventionist stance. The film and York's reemergence on the public scene made the aging hero more popular than ever. Gary Cooper won his only Best Actor Oscar for his taciturn portrayal of Alvin York, and the film earned another Academy Award for its use of sound. Though it was Warner Brothers' first movie to cost over $2 million, it went on to be one of the studio's most successful pictures. The movie played regularly on American military bases. Prints were given out to all of America's allies to promote the war effort. It even inspired a Calypso song recorded by Prince Charming of Trinidad. During World War II, Alvin York was constantly in the public eye. He was featured in magazines such as Life and The Hollywood Reporter, was mentioned in films like Guadalcanal Diary, and was even caricatured in a Porky Pig Looney Tunes cartoon as the character Sergeant Pork. Acting as a civilian liaison to the Signal Corps, he toured training camps across the country and signed autographs for eager young GIs. He observed ward games during the Tennessee maneuvers, raised money for Liberty Bonds and the Red Cross, and generously donated his time to the cause of the war. Throughout the course of the conflict, York had his own weekly radio show, Tennessee Americans, broadcast live by Knoxville's WNOX and nationally syndicated by the Mutual Broadcasting Company. The Sunday night show featured music, advice, discussions, and special guests such as Douglas MacArthur. York allowed his name to be used on a weekly syndicated newspaper column, Sergeant York Says, though he did not write any of the short pieces. Sergeant York Says offered readers homespun humor, urged them to participate in rationing, and to write letters to young men overseas who served their country. Additionally, York visited every training camp in the lower 48 states and often appeared in the Camel Caravan, a review show sponsored by Camel Cigarettes and the Grand Old Opry. After the war, York's health began to fail. He suffered from obesity, a series of strokes, and other ailments. Though less visible to the general public, he remained a person of interest. Visitors made a pilgrimage to the York home to have their picture taken with the bedridden hero. Journalists sought his opinion on everything from the conflict in Korea to his opinions about nuclear weapons. York died on September 2, 1964, but he did not fade into posterity. For years after his death, legislators from Tennessee approached the noted sculptor Felix de Weldon, known for his mammoth sculpture at Arlington, Virginia, of the Marines who raised the flag on Mount Sarabachi after the Battle of Iwo Jima, to create a tribute to Sergeant York. De Weldon created a maquette that met with the approval of the York family and the state. The larger-than-life sculpture featuring York standing with his legs firmly planted, peering down the sides of a Springfield rifle, sits on the southeast lawn 
of the Tennessee State Capitol grounds. Since 2000, York has been featured on the Arts and Entertainment Network's biography series in the documentary Sergeant York, A Reluctant Hero, as well as an episode of Tales of the Gun, Tales of Valor, and in a two-hour examination of the role of the non-commissioned officer in the U.S. Army, Sarge. These shows have relied heavily upon York's legendary military skills rather than his humanitarian efforts. In them, York remains primarily a super-soldier of mythic proportions. Warner Brothers reissued Sergeant York on DVD in 2006 with a number of special features, including a new documentary directed by John Maholland and narrated by Liam Neeson that attempts to separate fact from fiction. But the question remains, why does York endure? Because his legacy is not one-dimensional. Killing Germans never gave him any comfort, and York never took the mantle of hero lightly. World War I changed him in profound ways. He discovered a world he never imagined existed and recognized his own inadequacies in the process. Lesser men crumbled in the post-war era or joined the ranks of the lost generation, forever out of place and time. York remained optimistic and spent the remainder of his life trying to drag his country and its people into the 20th century at great personal sacrifice. All the while, York possessed a splendid sense of humor that never failed him. When he finally succeeded in building a school to educate the children of his region, Fentress County officials fought him every step of the way. In spite of the hardships placed on his family, he continued his personal crusade for the betterment of his region. People continue to make pilgrimages to Pall Mall to visit the home of the famed hero, and most are surprised to find out that he wanted to be remembered for his work in education. Some are even disappointed. The private wars York fought domestically deserve and demand more attention. Those stories enrich and enlarge a complex and fascinating life. That was written by Dr. Michael E. Birdwell, Ph.D., Department of History, Tennessee Technological University. May he rest in peace. Listen to future upcoming episodes of the Pall Mall Doughboys podcast to learn about some of these topics that we've discussed today and in this paper. Please consider subscribing to the podcast here and leaving us a rating and review and sharing us with your friends, which you know only costs a minute or two of your time. doesn't cost you anything. And one last thing, I'd like to give a shout-out to Vario Watches. Uh, they have a ton of awesome watches. They are Swiss movement watches, beautiful watches. They're really great, run really well, and um, really well made. Uh, but I would like to specifically mention their 1918 trench watch. It is actually modeled after many similar trench watches that became prevalent in World War I and uh, were worn in the trenches by the men that came about from changing with uh, pocket watches to the wristwatch, which that's something we'll talk about in and of itself. But I would just like to thank Vario Watches. If you could, go check them out. I'll leave a link in the description for them to check out their website. They've got a great watch, especially if you're into reenacting and you want a good quality watch to go with your kit for if you ever do any World War I reenacting. I would highly suggest the 1918 trench watch that they have. So check them out and see if it would be a good fit for your reenacting gear. Thanks again, and we hope you join us on the next episode of the Pal Mal Doughboys podcast.